good, but then we chose to uh, be God instead of worship God. And so then sin enters the world and it ruins and wrecks everything that God had in store and planned. He then chooses a man, an old man, Abram, to be the nation of his people. They experience struggles of faith, but yet they do believe, culminating in that willingness to sacrifice his son that day. We then see that family turn into a nation, but they are an enslaved nation. And they are drawn out of Egypt by the one that was drawn out of the Nile, right? And Moses leads the people into the wilderness and from slavery. Eventually they will hit the promised land flowing of milk and honey. God will establish rules and boundaries. God will fight battles for them to to take over this land. He will sustain his people, yet the people abandon their God. They worship what feels good, what feels right. They demand to be like all the others. We looked at the king, Sidney did, and showed us that we denied God as our sovereign king, and instead we wanted a man to fill that role. We looked at the prophets and how he has warned us through the sending of these uh, voices, saying, repent from this, turn from this, remember me. And yet, as Cooper showed us, they did not repent. It resulted in exile. We looked at that last week. And maybe you didn't see, you weren't here and I haven't uploaded it, sorry, but exile was a punishment on the people of God for failing to worship their God. And so the northern kingdom, Israel, was sent into exile for about 200 years. The southern kingdom, Judah, was sent into exile for 70 years. They are punished because they did not remain faithful. After the 70 years is up, God not only can is he in control, but he can bound the punishment with which he inflicts upon his people. He uses these pagan nations to take over them, but then he releases them as he said he would. They are released, they return, they rebuild the temple, but they never remain faithful. It gets so bad, Malachi, the last uh, prophet we hear from uh, God until this 400 years of silence, Malachi 1 verse 10 says this, Oh, I wish someone would shut the door of the temple so you stop making offerings on my altar in vain. God says, you know what? If you're going to worship like this, I'd rather you just stop. What are they doing wrong? Verse 8 tells us they're offering blind animals. They're offering lame and sick animals. What are they doing? They're not giving their best to God. They're not offering the without blemish. No, they're offering what is left over what they do not need and do not want. See, they're saying, God, you can have a little bit of my extra, but that's all I am willing to give you. Is that how we treat our God? Giving Him what we don't want or don't need, just giving Him whatever's left over, if there is any left over. We don't give Him our best, our best time, our best attitude, our best energy. No, we just give Him whatever space is allowed. If we ever have extra, in most days we don't even have any extra. He says, you know what, you are not worshiping me as you should. And then we have no canonized words, no biblical words of God for about 400 years. There's silence. Does that mean that God was not working? Absolutely not. Does that mean that worship was not taking place and that the true believers of God and the true followers and understanders of who He is and what He has done were not present? No, 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 they were. But God is silent for 400 years. And what happens? 
Rome comes and invades the land, and now the people once again are subject to an authority they don't want to be under. They are longing for God to change their world, to change their lives, to change their circumstances. They are longing for God to change this reality. And this is what Jesus steps into, a people longing for something different. So we're in the book of John this morning. If you will, we're going to be all throughout it. We're going to start in the very last two chapters of John. John is an interesting gospel writer. So Matthew, Mark, and Luke think of it as writing a biography. They're called the synoptic gospels. They are writing to kind of give you the who, what, when, where, and why of Jesus. Well, less of the why, but the who, what, when, and where, and how. They are writing so you can understand this is where he went, this is what he did, this is who he healed, all of that sort of stuff. Kind of a timeline, a a play-by-play. John has a purpose. He strategically writes his book, and he says at the very end, he tells you, this is why I wrote this book, and this is how I wrote it. Chapter 20, verse 30. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. He's like, go read Matthew, Mark, and Luke. But these are written, why? So that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in His name. John is very clear. I am not writing you a play-by-play. I am writing you what you need to know so that you can believe and that you can find life. This is the purpose. He'll even say, he'll answer, well, why didn't you just... Make your book a little longer, John. I mean, you're only 21 chapters. Matthew got to 28. Like, you you got a few extra space, right? This is what his answer would be, 21, 25. Now, there's also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them written, I suppose the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. It's not just a few more chapters I left off. Like, his life is so magnificent You would marvel at every day and every page. I cannot write everything down. And so what I did is I strategically wrote this so that you may know He is the Christ, He is the Son of God, and that by knowing this, you may believe and you may have life. So let's jump into what is John doing in this gospel and how can we see Jesus. John is wanting to show us that that Jesus is the anticipated one. He's the suffering servant of Isaiah. He is the true king from the lineage of David that all other kings failed to live up to. He is the perfect lamb that Leviticus told us we needed to get to know about and that would only be the one that could pay for us. He is the one that we have hoped for, longed for, and the one that will set us free. So this is what Jesus is writing about in the book of John. Or this is what John is writing about in his gospel. So, now this week, quick aside, but it'll make sense. This week is Masters Week. I typically enjoy watching the Masters, okay? This year, for some reason, I think I've watched seven golf shots, all right? Like, I've seen, like, three missed putts and one dude in a sand trap. That's about all I've seen of the Masters this week. But I think probably one of the reasons why, and he's very, um, you either love him or hate him, but one of my favorite golfer growing up, I used to watch this guy all the time, is Tiger Woods, right? And Tiger's not in the tournament. And you can tell me why you don't like Tiger Woods. My wife tells me every time I bring him up, okay? But does he love his wife? Okay, I'm sorry. No, he does not. Um, Tiger I, just is amazing. He just wins in a sport that you're not supposed to win every time. He does, and it's just awesome. 
So Tiger was asked one day, he said, who, they asked him, who's on your Mount Rushmore of golfers? Mount Rushmore, you know, four presidents, just make sure you're good on that. That's a typical sports radio question, right? Who's your Mount Rushmore of NBA players? Who's your Mount Rushmore of best Aggie teams? Who's your Mount Rushmore of NFL quarterbacks, right? All this sort of stuff. So then Tiger said, I'm going to answer the question. He said, Sam Snead, you have some old guy you don't know about. He said, uh, Bobby Jones, some old guy you still don't know about. He said, Jack Nicholas, an old guy some of you may know about. And then he said, me. And some of you kind of are like, I mean, he's right, but that's pretty arrogant. And can you really say that about yourself? Is, is that okay? All the facts line up. Do you mean that, uh, that Tiger is one of the best four golfers ever in the history of the game? But admitting it is hard. So Jesus does something very similar in the book of John. See, Jesus doesn't mind connecting himself to the name of God. See, Jesus is saying, no, I am divine. I am from God. And he's going to use what is the seven I am statements throughout the book of John to connect himself to the name of God. Because if you remember back in Exodus 3, and I know we're getting into all sorts of different things. Exodus 3, Moses says, all right, I'm going to go and do what you tell me to do, but you got to tell me your name so I can tell them who sent me. God says, my name is I am. So Jesus then is going to carry forth that name because he's the Trinity. He's part of this name. And he's going to use seven I am statements to reinforce both his divinity and the reason that he is here. And so we're going to look at those extremely quickly this morning. They, you could do one a day for the next seven weeks or the next 49 weeks. I don't know how you want to do it. We're going to do seven in one day. All right. So that's what we're trying to do. So Jesus says, I am seven times. Let's jump through them. Starting in Luke, mean John, John the whole day, 635, first one. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall not thirst. Jesus has just fed 5,000 people. And Peter, go ahead and put up that next slide so they can have the reference, and there we go. Each time it'll come up for you. 5,000 people have just been fed, and guess what? They start following him. Because you know what's easier than working for your bread? Just sitting there and listening to a guy teach and then give you a bunch of bread. So they decide they're just going to keep following him. He is their meal ticket. Jesus realizes their motives. And so he says, and through chapter 5 and chapter 6, he starts teaching a lot of things going, I don't want you just, for, just following me because I can give you certain things. I want you following me because you want to devote your life to me. I want you to give your life to me and not just what I, you can get out of me. And so he begins to teach and he gets so difficult in teaching that at the end of chapter 6, verse 66, easy to remember, John 6, 6, 6, all right? Then many went away because what he was teaching was so difficult. See, they stopped just seeing him as a free meal and they started seeing he demands a lot from me. And that's exactly what Jesus is doing here. He's saying, I am the bread of life. He's connecting himself to the manna that God would send down and to sustain his people. He's saying, I am your sustainer. You will no longer be thirsty. You will no longer be hungry. I will meet your essential needs. Remember the biggest plea or the first plea of the Lord's prayer. Give us this day our daily bread. Jesus is saying, I am your daily bread. 
I am the bread of life. I am the one who will take care of you. I am the one who will sustain you. When you are worried and anxious about these things, look at me. I am what you must feast on. I am what you must trust in. Next one. Told you we're going fast. Jesus 8, 12 says this. Again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. We've got a soon-to-be four-year-old, and it's no longer irrational discussions that we're in. No, they're very rational. They're very much debates. They're very much uh, deceptive on his end, working through, how can I get the most out of my uh, weak, backboned parents so that I can both have a story and milk, and they have to do this? And so he manipulates the mess out of us, and he wins more days than we do. But bedtime is now a nightly balance as we battle through what's the right amount of light, the right amount of food, the right amount of milk, the right amount of stories, the right amount of rubbing his head and trying to sneak out while he's still asleep but not able to still enjoy our evening. And then this is what you get when you sneak out too fast. But I'm scared of the dark. And he's just straight lying to us. He is not scared of the dark. But how many of us are scared of the dark? Some of you are going, okay, like, for real I am, I have a nightlight. I hear a bunch of creaks in the apartment all the time, and it freaks me out. Okay, well, I understand that a little bit. But, but how many of us are scared of the, what we cannot see? Of, I think that's Bill over there wrestling a, uh, a piece of candy, but I can't really see, and so I'm going to just kind of need to make sure it's not something big and bad. How many of us are scared of the unknown? Of not being able to see what is ahead and really not willing to be able to take a step? See, I like to play a game sometimes when you're walking through a dark hallway or a dark part of the office or, or even around the house late at night where I don't turn the lights on. Instead, I just try to navigate the room, right? But then you wake up with like bruises on your shins and knocks on your elbows. You, you realize the need for light to guide you to reveal to you the next step. How many of us are so scared of the dark, but we're not willing to, exp to embrace Jesus as the light of the world, giving us direction, giving us guidance, giving us the way that we ought to go? It says in Psalm 27, 1, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? We are terrified of the dark and unknown that is ahead, and yet we have the one who says, I am the light of the world, and I will be the light of your life if you will trust me. And yet we're going, well, actually, I, I need a high-powered LED that not only shows me the next step, but all the way down. No, he says, I am the light. I will guide you. When you are wandering and worried, when you're trying to decide which is good and which is better, when you're trying to seek clarity for a major, for a job, for an internship, for a dating relationship, for what to do with your life, Jesus says, trust me, I am the light of the world. I will guide you. I want to be your light. Will you believe in me? Or will you just stay scared of the dark? Number three, keeping going. It says this, uh, chapter 10 Verses 7 through 9, Jesus said to them again, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me were thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. 
I don't think we need to teach that one. Y'all understand, right? The door, we'll just keep going. No. It's probably the most confusing statement of Jesus in all of these. What does that mean that he is the door? So he is using shepherding language, okay? That is, makes sense to his audience, makes less sense to us, but we'll make sure we, uh, we personalize it here. Jesus is saying, I am the door. What would happen at night is the shepherds would gather uh, together and they'd bring all of their flock together and they would find kind of a rock formation or something that created a barrier on most sides. It would have a small entryway that you could go in and they would lead all the sheep in there. And then you had that one entry point, that one access point, that one point that if the wolf came in, he could devour. And so do you know what the shepherds did? They didn't establish some fancy gate. They didn't have a cool ranch. They just set it up, you know, and had a garage door opener, and it opened up when they got home. No. They laid their bodies across the threshold. They became the access point. If you want to get to the sheep, you got to go through me. The sheep were led in through this door. They would open it up for them and deny it to anything that was harmful or that would afflict the sheep in any way. Jesus is saying, I am the door. I am your access point. I am your protection. I am your privilege to be in the kingdom. I am your safety once you are in. No one will steal you from me. No one will come in and take you away. I am the shepherd who lays down his life to save you and to protect you and to give you access and to deny every other thing access. He builds on this, verse 11 and verse 14. This is the fourth one. I am the good shepherd. Verse 11, it says, the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Verse 14 says, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Remember I said the shepherds would all throw all their flock in together? We would have a tough time differentiating a bunch of sheep. Shepherds don't. One, the sheep know their voice. The sheep, I mean, the shepherd calls out, their sheep come to them. Do you know the voice of the good shepherd? The other thing is, not only do the sheep know their shepherds, but the shepherd knows their sheep closely, personally. They know the one that is prone to be stubborn and to hang back. They know the one that is dealing with some sickness. They know the one that is, uh, has a bum leg. They know the one who is often ill. They know the one that has weaknesses. They know the ones that have needs. They know their names. They know their history. The shepherd knows the sheep. And a shepherd is willing to lay down their life for the sheep. doesn't mean they're willingly looking to get hurt, but they are willing to risk injury for the sake of the sheep. Does that sound familiar? Jesus even uses an example in Luke 15 of the shepherd who, he's got his 99 corralled, but he leaves them. Why? To go get the one. Because the shepherd cares about every single sheep under his command. This is the shepherd we have in Jesus. So I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the door. I am the good shepherd. Number five, Lazarus has died in John chapter 11, his friend. Mary and Martha are also friends of Jesus. They call him and say, our brother has died. They even say, if you would have been here, he would not have died. Jesus has wept over this man. 
And then in 11.25, he says this, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he shall live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Jesus says, I am the resurrection. Yes, this life is full of pain and sickness and hurt and death, but I will tell you, I can overcome this. I have power over this. I love how he asks in verse 27, if we can throw that back up there. He says, do you believe this? And Martha says, yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God who is coming into the world. Sounds a whole lot like what John was writing this book for us to believe. That you are the Christ, the Son of God. And that by believing in you, that death can be overcome. Jesus will show that he has the power to raise the dead, that he can bring life from dead and dry bones. He will even be raised himself, eventually or finally defeating sin and Satan. Whoever believes in me, though he may die in this world, will live with me forever. The sixth one, as we finish up, we have two quick ones left. John 14, 6. Jesus is talking about that he's going to die, he's going to go prepare a place for them. And then finally Thomas, the one that needs to see the scars in the side, he says, Jesus, you're talking about going to this place, but in verse 5, we don't know where you're going and how can we go with you if we don't know the way. Jesus says this, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. I want you to notice, Olivia, you're the English major back there. We got an article, I think I'm right on this. He uses a definite article, not indefinite, is that right? Yes, got it. Okay, I'm not too dumb. All right. Our world says Jesus is a way. Jesus is a truth. Jesus is a life. That's not what Jesus writes or Jesus speaks. No, Jesus says, I am the way. There's only one. I am the truth. There's only one truth. I am the life. There's only one life. See, we have this idea that, okay, we can allow for others to come about into all these different ways, but no, Jesus is very clear. This is the only way. John 14, 6, the way I like to think of it is, I am, as Jesus is saying, I'm the only way, the only right way, the only true way to live. I am the only true and right way to have life. He'll speak of that as the narrow and difficult way. We talked last week about how we want a comfortable Christian bubble in this idea of Christendom is what we talked about. But we must not die on the hill of Christendom, but we must spend our lives for the sake of Christ. Making Christ easy to follow does not necessarily align with Scripture. Making Christ the only thing that's worth following is what Scripture is all about. May we not be trying to make it easy, but may we try to be faithful along the way. So, for all of us that are terrified of dying, Jesus is the resurrection and the life. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. The only way, the only right way to live. All right, let's end with this. It says, I am, in John 15, verse 1, I am the vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Continuing on. 
Abide in me, verse 4, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides, neither can you unless you abide with me. You want to bear fruit? You want to have a fruitful life as Troy's been teaching us for many, many weeks now? You must abide in me. It's not something you can generate on your own. You need the nourishment that I provide. Continuing on, verse 5, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. If you abide in me, you will necessarily bear fruit. However, apart from me, you can do nothing. The vine is the source of all things. A branch has no hope except to be firewood, except that it is connected to the vine, to its sustenance, to its nourishment, to its resources and its fruitfulness. Apart from me, you can do nothing. My question this morning for us is this. How many of us accept the first six I am statements of Jesus, but aren't willing to follow this one? We like one who is the bread of life meeting our needs. We love one that guides us because we don't know what the future holds, and if he holds the future, well, great, help give us some answers. We love that he protects us as the door. He grants us access, but then he also lays down his life because he's a good shepherd who knows us and cares for us. We love that he can raise us from the dead because death terrifies us. We love that he is the way, the truth, and the life. We fight against it and want to do our own way and our own truth sometimes, but we can accept that. But are you willing to accept that apart from him, you can do nothing? Because when I look at our lives, I see a lot of what I can create, what I can cause, what I can manufacture, what I can do. Apart from me, you can do nothing. It reminds me of, I thought it was Kanye, but it's Snoop. I had to look it up this morning. I said that pretty cool. I want to thank me. Have you heard that before, right? I want to thank me for being me, for believing in me. For the hard work. I want to thank me for having no days off. I want to thank me for never quitting. I want to thank me for always being a giver. I want to thank me for doing more right than wrong. I want to thank me for being me all the time. Hmm. I wonder how many of our theologies are very similar to Snoop Dogg's. I'm pretty hip. I use Snoop today. That's good. I have to tell Carlin about that. How many of us love Jesus as all those great things, but then if we had a Mount Rushmore of who is to, who is to praise for the establishment of your life, you're right there with Tiger Woods saying, well, me. I'm part of making myself get here. I created this. I caused this. I made this. I'm the one that put in the hard work. I'm the one who studied. I'm the one who did this. I'm the one who invited them. I'm the one who's made a difference here. I'm the one who chooses this every day. See, in apart from me, you can do nothing. We don't like that very much because we want to get some rewards and some credit for all the things that we've done. We want Jesus to give us that ring that says, oh yeah, you did work hard. And, and sadly, you could leave right now. Those of you that raise your hand, you could go and you could go into a job interview and just say, yeah, I attended Texas A&M University, flash that ring and never have to say I graduated, right? You don't have a degree. 
Some of you just got an idea and you said, okay, if I use that wording correctly, you know, I can even put down my resume, attended from so-and-so to so-and-so. See, we want to place ourselves and go, but, but I did some of it. Jesus says, apart from me, you can do nothing. Our faith in him, by believing in him, that he is the Christ, the Son of God, that he is the ruler and reigner in our lives, that he is the Lord of our life, the Savior of our life, that he is the sent one, he is the sustaining one, he is the saving one, and he is our sole hope. This is what we have to get to, and we've got to move ourselves out of that position of praise and into a position of just worship of the one who is great, not of the ones that we think are great. And so when Jesus came, into our, came to this world, he was all of those things we've talked about. But Jesus came with a purpose. He was revealing his purpose in those I am statements, but his purpose was first and foremost to die for us, to reverse the curse of sin, to grant a way for us to be in heaven, to pay the debt of sin owed because the law that God has established is not abolished, but it is fulfilled in him. It is he came so that we can then be with him for eternity so that he can grant life to us forever because he knows that if it relies on us in any way, we have no hope and we have no chance. And so Jesus, as John will say, will spend his life for the sake of his sheep so that they may have life and have life to the fullest. Here's why it doesn't make sense. Why would the shepherd leave the 99? Now somewhat, I mean, you can get into there, sort of protected because of the other shepherds and all this. Why would a shepherd lay down his life for the sheep? The shepherd's life is more valuable than a sheep. Jesus' life is more valuable than ours. But because of his great love for us, he willingly lays his life down so that we can have life. It doesn't make sense. Only because this is the story God has been writing since page one. So let me pray for us. And I went over in time. And so um, here's what I want to challenge you to do. So sorry, Sydney and Davis. We wanted to hear you again, but I messed up. Um, here's what I want you to do. Those seven I am statements. Throw that back up on the board, Peter. I hope you wrote down those. If you ever just want to find them, just Google seven I am statements of Jesus. I would encourage you either once one day per ver- um, statement this week, or just pick one to really just meditate on and to think through, but wrestle through these I am statements because it reveals who your Savior truly is. So let me pray.